just the idea that you can simply invest a little money and make your carbon footprint disappear sounds too good to be true. That's because it absolutely is. Study after study has indicated that most offsets available on the market don't reliably reduce emissions. And yet, offsets are now the backbone of the environmental policies of many of the biggest polluters on the planet. So given that, tonight, let's talk about carbon offsets. Welcome to EcoAlarm, the podcast where we break down the major factors affecting the environment and explore what we can do to help. I'm your host, Bo. And I'm your host, Imani. And today we're talking about two complicated and controversial topics, cryptocurrency and carbon offsets. Luckily, our guest Mitchell is combining both of them by being the founder of CarbonLink, a platform to sell, buy, and manage carbon offsets using cryptocurrency. But what does this even mean? So carbon offsets allow companies to compensate for their carbon footprint by putting money toward carbon reduction projects like tree planting and renewable energy. And one carbon offset equals to one ton of CO2 taken out of the atmosphere. You may be thinking, wow, this is such a great solution. A lot of people don't think it's too good to be true. A lot of people are real proponents of it. Either way, we're really excited to dig into this debate and see how CarbonLink is addressing some of these concerns associated with carbon offsets and crypto. So Mitchell, thanks for joining us today. Um, I guess first off, we are and our listeners are curious about what CarbonLink is about and what inspired you to, to start it. Yeah, completely. Um, so in short, um, CarbonLink is a platform for purchasing, managing, and retiring on-chain offsets. Essentially, we make it a lot easier for you know CSR teams um, or even individuals trying to access the voluntary carbon market on the blockchain so that they are actually able to purchase and access the large amount of offsets that are available on the blockchain. But what kind of actually inspired uh, inspired me to start it, definitely, I would say probably longer longer, more circuitous answer, but really got into sustainability around, I think, my sophomore year in high school. Um, at the time, was kind of thinking like, oh, I'm going to go off, do consulting, um, maybe banking, something like that. I hadn't really actually considered many other things. And then my brother fell asleep in the shower. Uh, took him about two and a half hours until someone finally woke him up. And uh, when I say like my mom was quite irate, um, I think everyone's parents would be quite quite upset about that one. So she kind of posed a question to us. She was like, Actually, essentially not even a question. She said, I'm going to cut off the hot water. Um, and I remember at the time, uh, hot showers in the morning were kind of critical to my daily routine and I'm pretty argumentative. So I was determined to prove that he actually wastes less water than her. At the time, I thought I'd read something about how, because, you know, we buy clothes secondhand, me and him really liked shopping at Goodwill at the time that, you know, most likely we would have uh, lower water waste than she would. Ended up doing a really long, intensive water calculator. And I think kind of when I got to the results, that was when I was sort of surprised. Introduced me to the entire water crisis. Uh, Saul Vox explained they have an amazing documentary on the water crisis specifically. Um, and I think I was kind of like, oh, shit, we're going to run out of water. And I think that really just opened my eyes in general, just to uh, kind of environmental concerns overall. Since then, of course, uh, unfortunately, at the time when I was thinking, you know, how can I actually contribute? I'm horrendous at STEM. I almost failed out of physics my freshman year. Math, definitely not my strong suit. Um, engineering was never a track that I ever thought I could hop on. So I remember kind of bouncing around in my head, pretty bummed by the idea thinking, you know, what can I do? I thought I was going to go and do business, trying to figure out, you know, what part can I actually play in the grand scheme of things? And so that was sort of when I came around to the, uh, the idea, like, 
where can I kind of apply my strengths? And specifically, I thought, you know, a lot of these people are fantastic engineers, right? There's great scientists building amazing renewable energy technologies, you know, biochar, you know, carbon capture, et cetera. And I was like, best way I can probably help them honestly is getting the money. I wanted to, knew I already wanted to work in finance. So kind of hopped on the track, wanting to do specifically um, working on, you know, venture capital or investment banking, focusing on investing in a lot of these different projects. After my freshman year, though, was kind of struggling on getting into that track. I think everyone probably at USC can kind of relate. Um, you can get caught up in the uh, the internship grind and all of a sudden I'm kind of freaking out like, oh gosh, maybe I should just kind of give up on this one. Um, it's going to be hard to break into it. Maybe that's something I do five years down the line. But someone kind of convinced me that I should intern or try to intern for one of these startups um, back home in Nashville. So went went back over there and kind of interviewed it. They were specifically, it's called the company that uh, I interviewed with, um, it's called Nextward Bioenergy. Um, and they have probably some of the coolest tech ever, highly recommend looking at it, but essentially what they are is it looks like this big storage container. They take in anything organic. So that could be concrete, plastic waste, even a human body. They separate the carbon from it, capture it, and then they burn off the rest of it. So it creates on-site waste, uh, on-site waste disposal, as well as generating energy without emitting additional carbon. So I thought they were insanely cool. Wanted to do anything I could to help with business development. And one of the things that they were mentioning to me in the interview was he kind of posed the question, he goes, what do you know about carbon offsets? Um, I told him absolutely nothing because I didn't. And that was when he sort of introduced me to the world of carbon offsets, explained a lot of the issues that they kind of face specifically, um, but also explained to me how it was critical for them to actually receive funding. But what I kind of was really took away from it was the fact that he explained that right now, if they went to market, even though they entirely depend on carbon offsets to fund their development, he said that the current alternatives looked like they would lose about 20% regardless. Explained how it was incredibly broker dominated, how they were probably gonna have to have someone full-time staff it. Um, and regardless, even with all that effort, they were still going to lose 20% because every intermediary that touched it was going to take a percentage. And in my head, I was obviously just thought that was incredibly inefficient and absurd. But also I think I was kind of frustrated because I knew that, you know, every little percentage of that, right? Like that extra 20%, that's 20% more that they can go towards development, right? That's 20% more they can go to marketing, trying to get this, uh, get this technology into more on-sites. And so I kind of started going down the rabbit hole. Uh, I know like I immediately went home and was Googling like carbon offset markets, trying to learn as much as I could about it really also because I really wanted to work for them. So I was hoping the next interview would come in and absolutely kill it. Unfortunately, they didn't get funding. They didn't hire me, but I'd kind of already started going down that rabbit hole. And at the uh, the same time, um, had gotten really into blockchain, um, really kind of fell in love with sort of the mission of uh, Bitcoin, thought Ethereum was an incredibly interesting technology. And there was some pretty blatant synergies, right? Like the whole kind of concept, right, that originally originated for blockchain was cutting out intermediaries. And the very first problem that I even saw with carbon offsets and the carbon market specifically was there's way too many intermediaries. Um, so didn't really have any experience in kind of both of them, but just kept doing research along the lines of seeing what it is that could actually, you know, is there any way that we could actually make it work? And kind of the idea of maybe you could potentially tokenize a carbon offset. What would that look like, et cetera? So it was kind of playing with that in the back of my mind. Honestly, I'm not technical. I didn't think I was going to be the one to do it. So it was kind of one of those cool ambitions that I would, you know, maybe mention randomly, but didn't actually think I was ever going to get around to it. Came back to USC uh, the fall. That was my sophomore year. Um, and I got into Lava Lab. So that's a uh, USC's um, student-run incubator. I take 28, cohort of 28, seven project man product managers, seven designers, and 14 developers. I got paired up with a fantastic team. During the ideation phase, I, I reached back out to the project developer. And I said, hey, I know I wasn't the one to build this, but I have some people that can actually help me. Would you guys be interested kind of in working with us and giving us some of your insight? Because 
definitely are going to need it. They completely agreed. They got really excited by the concept. Um, and since then, we've kind of been off to the races. That was sort of the, the long, the long story all the way around. You know, in short, I just really fell in love with offsets. I think I found that for me, someone who's kind of already looking at, you know, how can we finance, you know, a lot of these fantastic projects. The fact that there is a tool literally built for helping finance these projects, I thought that was incredibly powerful. And I thought the best kind of use of my time, possibly if I did want to make an impact, was trying to make it a much better system than it already was. Awesome. I cannot believe that all started from a long shower. <laughs> quite a long the story. <laughs> I am curious though. I mean, before we jump like too far into what you guys are doing at Carbon Link, let's take it a step back. Let's think like freshman year you, how would you explain carbon offsets? Yeah, I think best way that I like to explain it, right, is imagine it as a, a negative ton of CO2, right? So Projects like, you know, renewable energy or forestry conservation, they earn one carbon offset for every single ton of CO2 that they capture, reduce, or avoid from emitting from the, into the atmosphere. Um, and the reason that's really important, right, is there are projects, there are companies like Microsoft, Google, Amazon, some of the biggest companies in the world that they have emissions that they can't offset internally, right? Like you can only do so much to reduce your internal emissions. Take like a Delta Airlines, right? They burn gas, like that is, that, is, that is what they do. We do not have electric planes. They can't actually do anything about it. You know, essentially they're able to purchase those offsets and um, you know, drive funding directly to those projects. And then simultaneously, they're able to reduce their emissions and compensate kind of for the harm they put out. So the negative ton of CO2 is kind of the best way to think about it. If you capture a ton, you could qualify for a carbon offset. Granted, the process is a little bit more difficult than that. Um, not that straightforward, but uh, I would say kind of at a high level, that's one of the best ways to think about it. Awesome. And I guess if you know a little bit more of carbon offsets, then you can kind of see some of the criticisms are like, okay, well, like all of these companies are just going to like use it to say that, you know, they're doing all this good stuff, but they're still allowed to pollute on their end. Or you could also say that like, they're hard to verify. And so like, it's just seen as greenwashing. So how would you respond to some of those criticisms of offsets? Yeah, I think, you know, I think it's valid, very valid to critique um, the carbon markets. I think that, you know, we've seen a lot of different projects kind of get blown up over the years. I think if someone saw John Oliver recently, you know, he was highlighting some of the worst of them. So I think it's always good to criticize, right? There is always a way to get a lot better. I say I would kind of point to some of the developments that we've really seen in the past few years, specifically, uh, first and foremost, like improvements in methodologies, right? So like, there, there is a, an element of additionality and permanence. Recently, there's been a lot more emphasis on that permanence factor. And that means, right, that if there is some issue where possibly a forest burns down, right, there's going to be some tracking that's going to work to make sure that those offsets then can't be sold into the future, even if they might have already been issued. I also think that, again, going kind of back just in general to the Delta Airlines example, what would you have Delta Airlines do, right? Like they burn gas. Um, we can't stop all planes from flying. So you kind of have two options, right? Okay, don't offset your emissions because we think that this might be some kind of bad tool. But at the same time, you know, for every one bad egg, for every one bad project that you might be able to highlight, like I can point to at least 10 that I know that would not exist without a carbon offset, right? So sure, they might drive some funding towards some really bad actors that I promise everyone in the market is very aware of and trying to get out as hard, like as best as possible. But at the very least, like we can force them to compensate for their emissions. And we can wait until they actually the technology that they can use to actually reduce their internal emissions catches up. 
Um, in a perfect world, right? Carbon offsets don't exist in 20, 30 years. That is the ambition of the carbon market. So I say, yeah, I think there is something to be said about greenwashing, um, but I would also acknowledge that, you know, it's really, really hard to reduce your emissions, right? If you're Amazon and you're running like millions and millions and millions and millions of servers every single day, like it's not just as simple as switching it, right? Because you're going to do some massive disruption. We wouldn't be able to speak right now, all right? Like the tech that we're working on wouldn't work. And so I think that while greenwashing is definitely a very valid concern, you know, I think I would at least point to specifically like, you know, looking at the internal actions that companies are actually doing. But in the meantime, right, as long as they're offsetting and by purchasing those offsets, they do create a market for these companies, these other projects to do something that doesn't actually have any financial incentive whatsoever other than that offset, right? Like if me and you want to go and buy 5,000 acres of forest, that's going to be a really bad investment unless we do one of two things, cut all the trees down or turn it into a subdivision. And both of those are horrendous for the environment. But with carbon offsets, there is actually the potential for us to just buy those 5,000 acres and preserve them and not lose a ton of money on our investment. Um, and so I think that, you know, looking kind of just at the basis of what a carbon offset is at the end of the day, you can be upset that maybe one of your favorite companies is, you know, in your opinion, quote, greenwashing. And I think that there is still some companies that most likely might be trying to engage in greenwashing. But I think, again, you kind of Got to got to kind of ignore that one percent that uh, I think everyone really likes to highlight and look at the ninety percent, the ninety nine percent that is really good. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. Like a lot of businesses, a lot of industries, they're not in a position to to really, um, you know. But that does pique my curiosity about this. Not not to be a dead horse, but uh, and this yeah. is not this is probably a question that that's uh, is more for you know just put out there if you have any thoughts. Um, but what about the trade-off between, let's say, companies kind of settling for purchasing these offsets instead of putting money into uh, R&D for future uh, innovation that, that has longer-lasting impact on the environment? Yeah, I think that, um, and you know, I think <clears throat> just kind of as a precursor to answer that, carbon offsets were an invention of the financial market. Um, like the whole basis of it, it's called like a Peruvian tax. It, I think, you know, kind of can study in micro, macroeconomics, but essentially it's the idea that there are things that there's an activity that a company can do that we might just base off financial, but it could have repercussions that are kind of invisible. For instance, one of those being like trashing the planet that actually has a financial repercussion, right? I forgot what the number was exactly, but someone finally released a report, like climate change is gonna cost the world like $6 trillion for every year for the next like 20 years, right? And so the idea of, right, by really creating that carbon offset was kind of this dirty acknowledgement that our market only rewards something with financial incentive, um, right? Whether it's a punishment or it's a reward, like that's the only way that we're really gonna actually be able to kind of mass mobilize people. And so I would say, with that being said, the way that offsets were designed um, was that they are supposed to continuously get stricter, right? So about five or six years ago, solar solar panels in the U.S. still would have been able to generate offsets. I think it was about two years ago that they finally phased that out because it wasn't additional and there are things that are more impactful and more permanent. And so with that being said, the price of offsets is expected to continually rise incredibly dramatically. And so I think we kind of have to trust in the free market almost there, right? That the people running these companies hopefully are smart. I could do the projection form on an Excel sheet pretty quickly. So hopefully it's not too difficult for them. But if they don't invest in that R&D as well as making the like making those purchase of offsets, they're going to have a massive problem in six or seven years if they're solely dependent on offsets when the price of offsets is already done, I think, 5x. Like I think the current projection by the uh, international, international finance 
I'm blanking on the fancy name of the form and I know it's in my slide deck somewhere, but the base case is the offsets increase by 40X over the next 20 years. That's pretty expensive. Like if a company is gonna have to pay 40 times more like in 20 years than what they were paying now just for one offset, I think, you know, if I'm someone's strategy officer, I'm probably gonna say we should look into reducing our internal emissions. I also think that there is an argument to be said that the act of purchasing offsets itself is directly funding R&D. So I was recently, uh, the project's led by Stripe. I know there's a few other companies that are participating in it, but they all essentially set $1 billion aside exclusively for purchasing CDR generated offsets. So CDR is uh, like direct carbon capture. And that's people that are literally pulling carbon directly out of the air. That's what we do kind of anticipate being probably one of the best, um, the best ways to really reduce carbon. Like you can only plant so many trees, but actually able to direct capture it, store it in liquid form, put it into rock, cluster it somewhere else. Like that's probably going to be one of the most efficient ways. And the reason that they put that $1 billion aside over the next 10 years solely to purchase those offsets is because they literally created an entirely new market. The amount of direct carbon capture companies that have popped up, like literally since that announcement is absurd because all of them now know that there is this massive financial incentive for us to actually be able to do that where previously everyone was looking at it like, hey, this is going to be an incredibly expensive technology to develop, which it is an incredibly expensive technology to develop. It's going to take us a really long time too. And there's currently no confirmation that there's going to be a financial reward out there for us. Um, and by a Stripe and a bunch of other companies committing to continuously purchase that, they really are sparking a lot of different innovation as well as development in those technologies. I think that makes a lot of sense. I do think another question people might ask is like, how do we verify then that these are happening i guess the easiest example for this would be like the planting trees one like what is stopping someone from just being like i'm gonna go cut down the tree that someone used as their carbon offset or like what happens if like that forest sets on fire how are we ensuring then that like and i guess it depends on like which kind of carbon offsets because obviously if you're like putting money into carbon capture then like i would hope that company exists but for some of these ones that are kind of like either international carbon offsets or something that we can't really see right in front of our face, how do we know that they're being protected? Yeah, so there's kind of you know, two things. This would be probably my first opportunity to really shill, I think, uh, blockchain's kind of involvement and kind of where it is looking to improve that space, right? The benefit of blockchain is there is a public ledger. Every single transaction that you make, I can see. I can see who you transacted with. I can see the value of what was transacted. And so one of the other really big benefits is, especially because the use of NFTs or non-fungible tokens for most of these offsets, is you can go into their data and trace the life cycle of that offset. So like one of the partners that we work with, Clima, um, they have this really awesome dashboard where every single project in their entire cache is publicly displayable. You're able to click on that and you're able to go all the way to the registry, see the exact information, read through their hundreds of pages of validation documents, Google them, see their websites, make sure that they're actually still active, see the images. And so granted, there might still be an element of trust there, but I would say like adding continual transparency to the market is probably one of the most important things at the moment. I think it's what a lot of people are being really aggressive about working towards. And there is some element of do your own research, right? Like hopefully if you are choosing to make like that offset purchase, you know, you take the extra one or two steps to go even look at like where that project is located. Um, you know, like I said, John Oliver on his the Today Show, he was making fun of the fact that one of the projects that kind of slipped through the cracks was called the Nature Preserve. It was like, it was already preserved, right? Preserve was in the name. I mean, even I'm really pissed at American Carbon Registry because I'm like, holy hell, how'd you guys miss that? Unfortunately, 
the amount of criticism they've gotten off that one has forced them to adopt the better standards, which then is kind of where I'll point to the registries and really the important role that they have to play. Easily the best registry right now is Vera. And when I can kind of point to why you would be able to trust most of the offsets that they work with, why I really trust them. First and foremost, they're transparent. They've made probably two big mistakes, I think, historically. Um, one was one of the methodologies that they used was able to get abused. They immediately discontinued all the credits. They immediately sent out um, a message to every single one of their partners. Um, I think the methodology was HFC 23. And they said, this specific one, this is not the one that you guys want to go with. We made a mistake. We're working to adopt and be continuously better. But with that being said, they don't really make mistakes that often because their process is actually incredibly rigorous, um, which is one of the problems actually in the market itself is we are trying to work on tech-enabled solutions because the cost to develop projects with a standard that is high as Vera is really difficult. Just to kind of give a quick overview of the process, let's say you are a project developer. This kind of help highlight how like difficult it is to sort of scam like a registry that is reputable like Vera. Let's say you're a project developer. We just bought, you know, those 20,000 acres. Very first step that we have to do is contact Vera. They're going to pair us up with an engineering firm that specializes specifically in whatever it is that we're doing. So whether it's renewable energy, if we're going with forestation, that's their specialty. So what they do is they come out and it does cost a whole lot of money to do it. They probably spend a week or two weeks on site. So they're actually seeing what it is that they're working with. They're doing the measurements and they issue what they call a validation document. That validation document, not worthwhile reading through. I've read through quite a lot of them. Definitely interesting to check out if you're just really, really curious, but it's about 200 pages long of all of their findings and if it hits the certain methodology. So in doing that research, they have to prove that there's going to be some element of permanence. They have to prove that there's additionality. Um, they need to prove actually how much carbon is being captured. And then what they do is every single year after that, before you can even uh, issue those offsets, they have to come back. They rerun their math, make sure that they were correct, make sure that you didn't casually cut down some trees like in the meantime. And only then when they submit the verification report, do you get that one year of offsets? And they'll keep doing that again every single year for as long as that validation period is, which is traditionally 10 years. So while it's not perfect, it is as rigorous probably as it gets. And I've definitely seen a lot of really good results with this so far. Okay. I think we're feeling better about the offset thing. And I think what you said about the blockchain and making it more transparent was probably another question of like, why bother putting it on the blockchain? Could we not just exchange regular money? But I think that explained a little bit more as to like the reasoning behind that. But I think one other concern people might have, and if you read news about the blockchain, I think one of the bigger criticisms is that, oh, but this uses a lot of energy and a lot of processing time. And doesn't that go against kind of the mission of doing carbon offsets? So how does carbon link kind of mitigate that energy use? Yeah, so I think that's an entirely valid concern. You know, I will say, I think a lot of the narrative or, you know, rhetoric probably specifically pointed towards Bitcoin. Um, you know, they are kind of the last large proof of work, which means they are running those really energy intensive uh, miners, um, you know, and I think they do, I think it's about 1%, right, of the current world emissions. Um, so I think that's a very valid concern. I will note just on that one, because I'm still a big believer in Bitcoin and the Bitcoin community. Uh, I think that they're almost on track to being 50% renewable energy sources. For instance, El Salvador is building their Bitcoin mine off of volcano fumes. Um, which is not only just incredibly cool, but obviously incredibly sustainable. So I would say like that is incredibly valid concern. And that's something that the entire blockchain community is very well aware of. 
I mean, if I Google, uh, there's going to be a thousand bad press articles about it. I will say, I think a lot of those are very overblown because we can point to a lot of other things that are in everyone else's daily lives that, you know, we depend on that are significantly worse. But I will say we were really intentional about that when we were picking which chain that we went with. We operate on the Polygon blockchain. Um, that is a layer two built on top of Ethereum. So it's proof of stake. Big difference between proof of stake and proof of work kind of just really simply is proof of stake is really just calling it to a server. No different than what we would be doing right now, right? Like whether we're running a Zoom or um, looking something up on a computer, right? You're calling some server some, somewhere far out. And so honestly, the energy difference isn't that significant. But what's fantastic about Polygon and why we really love building on them right now is they are carbon neutral. They went through the extra effort to make sure that that, you know, really small amount of emissions that they still did have left, that they did work to offset. And in doing that, they did catalyze um, a lot of the larger on-chain offset community. So I will say that's one of the big things that, you know, we really did focus on. And one of the things that we look at when we add new chains. So we also do run on Celo. They're also carbon neutral as well. So both of those are really important things for us. Just looking in the future, are you guys pretty much set stay on the platform? You know, just any products, offerings that you guys looking into expanding or new initiatives for? Yeah, yeah, that's 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 a touch point just because we're still pre-product and it's been about 11 months. It has been quite a long, rough 11 months. Interesting enough, we, we ironically started working on this about three weeks before our space was officially started. So like the first really big on-chain event um, was Clean the DAO and Toucan Protocol bringing the first um, carbon credits on-chain through a bridge. That happened three weeks after we had started. I remember we were celebrating what happened because we spent three weeks having people tell us like, oh, this is never going to work. So that was really exciting to be a part of it that early. Really big downside of it when you're a part of something that that's that is that new and is that fresh is that it constantly changes very very quickly. So I remember we completed our first project, which was our bridge, actually in about March. So originally we were focused on how we could help suppliers tokenize their own offsets. Um, even though there are some other bridges out there, we had some concerns. Fortunately, some of those concerns actually were answered by the registries themselves, so it made it a little less pressing. I will also note that not incredibly experienced in fintech obviously we are a lot of different students so it is a lot of learning as we go and i do know over the summer we were planning on launching actually uh in july and it was about two or three weeks before we did we got hit with a pretty pretty large legal request essentially someone was like i think everything you're doing might be illegal which is obviously pretty scary there's a lot of still confusion right because blockchain is pretty nascent and carbon offsets are still pretty nascent as well it's actually being debated right now on the uh, congress whether or not the cftc gets to regulate it whether the sec gets to regulate it um, so I remember we we're literally just, oh, it was quite frustrating. We were very close and the software provider we were working with, they came to us and essentially they said, Hey, we need like $150,000 legal memo from you guys stating that you aren't issuing securities and aren't issuing commodities. We knew the answer. Unfortunately, my word isn't worth as much as 150 K legal memo. So we were kind of able to resolve those conflicts, but it did mean we needed to switch software providers. Also throughout that process, right? A lot of different things changed. Honestly, half the features that I looked at, I was like, oh, those were horrendous. So I'm getting rid of those anyway. But fortunately, we do have a really large team. Um, we are super excited about developing more different use cases. So our offset platform right now, we're planning on pushing out kind of in uh, mid to late October. Obviously look out for that. Granted, I say mid to late October, knowing us, it could be probably more like early November. There'll also be an API. The other really big thing, right, is embedding offsets or allowing other people to build, right, with offsets. So we're really focused on the infrastructure. Um, for instance, there's a lot of different kind of 
you know, uh, lifestyle, sustainable lifestyle apps um, that we're talking with and working with that are really interested in, right, and building and integrating and bringing offsets to their clients and customers as well. So that's one of our big focuses. And then my personal favorite one, one that we've been working on for about six weeks now, it's called Carbon is Bad. So it's kind of being about the domain carbonisbad.com. So don't know when this airs, but obviously please go check it out by the time, by then. But uh, essentially one of our really big focuses kind of was we're talking with a lot of people, right, about offsets. You know, I think one offsets in general, if if you do know what about it, like about them, most likely you heard about them from negative press, right? Like if I say carbon offset and then I try explaining to you what a carbon offset is, just psychologically, you most likely already shut me out. But if I explain to you what it actually does, right, that you are directly investing in environmental projects, it's really no different than donating. And then I explain, oh yeah, it's a tool called a carbon offset, right? That's very different. And so one of our things was how could we get, right? A lot more of our friends who are super confused about what it is that we actually are doing. And they're always like, oh, what is it that you guys are doing again? How could we get them involved? What would be a way to really capture them, et cetera? And so we kind of came up with this idea, let's create like a really compelling narrative, you know, interactive webpage, something that you're able to scroll, really feel like it's really tangible. One that kind of highlights, first off, just what the problem is. One that doesn't shy away from the fact that like we are all a part of the problem, right? Like the fact that my lights are on right now, like that emits carbon. Um, the fact that I flew to LA, right, from Nashville and I got to fly back when I choose to go home, right? That emits carbon. But highlighting the fact that like that's not your fault. It's still Earth. It's planet. Like we all have to live. Everybody has to eat. You can't stop working. Can't stop eating. That is kind of the idea, right, behind offsets. So essentially the concept is just running you through that narrative. It kind of leads you into a calculator, lets you actually estimate and really understand what your emissions are and what the impact that that does have on the environment. And then it gives you the opportunity to uh, perpetually kind of offset it into the future, be able to subscribe and kind of, you know, live hopefully still working to reduce your emissions, but knowing that regardless, you are compensating for the harm that you cause the planet. Yeah. yeah. Oh, we hope uh, this episode, once, when the airs, it's probably going to clear up a lot of confusions especially around the USC community. I I didn't know much about crypto coming into this discussion. So definitely makes a lot of sense now. I do have one follow-up. It, it, it's about crypto. This is more like a personal thing. I, I saw Jamie Dimon, JP Morgan said, calling crypto, all, all cryptocurrencies, a, a decentralized Ponzi scheme the other day. So I just curious what you, what your thoughts on that? are i think uh in some capacity um he's probably right i think in another capacity jamie diamond has a lot of other issues he should probably be focusing on himself uh, used to respect him but you know that, that's a side piece i have my own jamie, jamie diamond tangent but i would say uh similar to carbon offsets blockchain is incredibly new and anytime there is something that is new anytime there's something that gets as much hype as it did especially in the past few years there's going to be bad actors that are going to totally take advantage so yes there were a ton of Ponzi schemes. I remember myself probably got caught up in one or two of them. Lost a couple hundred dollars, but hey, you live and you learn. And hopefully I know there's probably a lot of people out there that got hurt a little bit more. Obviously very sorry about that. Hope that doesn't turn you off to like what a lot of the beauty of the community is. Um, you know, I think a lot of people, I think actually the my professor at blockchain um, USC, he joked about it. He said, every time the, the price rises, every time the price of Bitcoin rises, he was like, my attendance rises. Every time the uh, price of Bitcoin crashes, like my uh, attendance crashes with it as well. And I think that there's something to be said about, you know, a lot of people don't kind of hang around in the bear market, but I think when you do, like it is really special. So, you know, pointing really to that decentralized thing. I do think one of the most powerful things that, uh, you know, blockchain did kind of introduce was um, decentralized organizations. The fact that, you know, you can bring together communities all across the world 
create governance systems so that we're not all just bickering and squabbling, but like actually able to get stuff done. I mean, our space was started by a DAO. It was started by a group of individuals who, you know, saw the opportunity for carbon offsets, saw the need to create more transparency, more accountability for it. And they were able to convince thousands of other people across the world um, on the exact same mission. And since then, you know, the amount of work that they've done, I want to say that they've helped retire now over what, 400,000, 500,000 tons of CO2, pulling that off the carbon market, consequently driving up the price and introducing more people to it in a really friendly and kind of accessible manner. I think those are super powerful, right? And I know a lot of people actually point to Climate specifically as a Ponzi. They were one of the uh, original Ohm forks, which really complicated. And honestly, I wish I could kind of break down Ohm simply, but if you look them up, you probably think that sounds like a Ponzi, but they did use that to catalyze, you know, to catalyze and start, start the on-chain carbon market. But you know, a lot of people now from an investing perspective would look at it and say, oh, that's a dead project, right? But if you hop in their Discord, it has never been more active. Like when we're with them in partnership meetings, they just offset, I think, a bunch of Mark Cuban's company, a bunch of Mark Cuban companies. Like they're working right now to really push a lot of their corporate partnerships. Obviously, our platform is supposed to be a really key tool for doing that. We do help kind of break down that Web3 barrier. So fingers crossed there, obviously, that that all goes to plan. But so I, I guess that would kind of be my, my answer in the long run. I'd say if you really look in deep and, you know, there are, there are Ponzi's out there. I would say don't touch JPEGs that are worth thousands of dollars. That's really not my, like my thing. So I, I think TBH will walk into a trap. If you're planning on doing that in any way, you're probably going to lose some money, regardless of where you put it, whether it's in a decentralized Ponzi scheme or a Ponzi scheme elsewhere. Um, but I would say, you know, really look into some of the communities. A lot of them are incredibly fascinating and interesting, regardless of their, of their token price, which, um, you know, probably not the best reason to get into blockchain in the first place, but I want to hop back a little bit just to do some vocab for those who may not be too familiar with blockchain stuff. So I think totally. two of them would be what is a DAO and then what is Web3? The best way you could describe this. Yeah, totally. So a DAO stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. Really all it is, best way to think of it is just first and foremost as an organization. The difference is, right, instead of having bylaws or, you know, even if it was a government, instead of having laws, um, you know, the whole thing with blockchain is code is the law. So, you know, these organizations are running on smart contracts, which are essentially, you know, the fundamental baseline or building block of blockchain. Those laws are all written in those codes. It helps them organize a lot more efficiently, make sure that you're not going to have one bad actor, right, that can outvote for the rest of them. So it was really, a DAO was really just the framework or the vehicle for you to be able to organize a group of people in a really trusted and safe way, maybe even keep some funds in a treasury, right? knowing that you don't have to actually trust your treasurer. Let's say you're a club at USC. You know, you don't have that one guy that has $1,000 in their Venmo and you're all praying that they're not spending it on something else um, because you actually have mechanisms that are protecting it um, to make sure that entire community, their interests are represented. Um, everything they do is voted on. So it's incredibly democratic process. Um, and DAOs honestly range from, I mean, there's Burger DAO. They bought a, I think a McDonald's franchise to something like ClimateDAO, which was building an on-chain carbon market and the infrastructure that came with that. So it's really just a way to organize people in a really trusted manner um, and also in a decentralized way where you don't just have one person of power. All right. So as we're wrapping up here, I want to end off by just, let's say someone's really interested in what you're talking about. Are there any ways to get involved with carbon work? Yeah, um, most certainly. Like I said, obviously, we'll have some projects coming out pretty soon, I'd say at the least. Uh, highly recommend going and looking at some of those. Additionally, if you go to our website, um, carbonlink.io, 
currently the uh, the newsletter. There's a capture tool for it. Um, so that's a great way to honestly get more informed about the space. Every other week, we're writing more information about it. Similarly, on the website, we have something called Learn. Essentially, the whole idea behind that was how could we break down a lot of the concepts that we just talked about today, um, kind of as simply as possible, also point to more resources to where you can learn more. But most importantly, I'd say shoot us an email, find us on campus, especially if you're at USC. Um, we're all a bunch of different students. Uh, one of our favorite things is the fact that we are. I think there's something you said about, you know, being young, probably a little over idealistic, um, but all together and able to throw out a lot of these just really fun ideas. And lastly, I think in general, if you want to get involved in the space, please, all of our partners are incredible. You can find most of them at ReFiDAO, which is the DAO that is organizing all of the startups that are working on chain. They have job boards. Honestly, they list uh, all the different companies. Best thing about all these companies is you can get involved in any capacity that you guys want, whether it's volunteering, whether you actually want to go for a paid position. That is the beauty of a DAO, climate specifically, Toucan. The whole space is incredibly massive, regardless of honestly your interest, whether it's carbon offsets or, you know, doing something boots on the ground, uh, more specifically sequestration or plastic waste or, um, you know, ocean preservation. There's literally something for anything environmentally related there. And there's a lot of energy in every single one of these projects. So it's a super exciting thing to be a part of. Awesome. Well, I want to end off by just thanking you so much. I learned a lot. I also came in not knowing like honestly too much about the blockchain, but I think we learned a lot and why exactly we should use it for carbon offsets. And I hope our audience learned a little bit more about carbon offsets too, since I feel like those are both a lot of like big buzzword topics right now. So I think getting a little clarity and seeing how students are using both of them to do change is a really cool thing. So thank you. Yeah, no, complete. Thank you for uh, having me on. Always, always love talking about it. Okay, that'll wrap up our episode for today. For more information on EcoAlarm and resources on topics covered in this episode, follow us at EcoAlarm Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Thank you guys so much for listening. Tune in every other Friday, and we'll see you next time. Bye.